Hello, welcome to the TVG podcast. And here it is, the 37-year wait is over. American Pharoah, it's finally the one. American Pharoah has won the Triple Crown. This is unbelievable. Zenyatta, what a performance. One we'll never forget. What a race, what a sport, what a horse. Arrogate romps in the Pegasus. The gambling is the most important thing. Without gambling, there is no racing. Big and important words from Mike Joyce on US wagering coming up. And Ken Rudolph is back with his come to Jesus moment for the structure of racing. We had some hot takes following Ken's comments last week that Joel Rosario is not the right jockey for McKinsey. And the opinions were heated on social media. So thank you all for engaging with us. At the Kenny Claude, Kenneth Martinez said on Twitter, if I was Baffert, I would have put up Louis Saz on McKinsey, though. Best front-end rider. And David Christopher on Facebook said, No offence, Ken, but that doesn't even make sense. Rosario won the Breeders' Cup Classic last year on Accelerate, and he's riding as good as any jockey in America right now. Well, we'll find out in the Breeders' Cup Classic next Saturday if they made the right or wrong decision. But for now, our latest guest today is Candice Hare, fresh off the plane from Australia. You'll be hearing her later as we chat all things handicaps. Not to be confused with handicapping, this is the handicap race system and what the US misses out on. To let you know, we are now live on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Radio Public. There is no excuse not to download, subscribe and rate the TVG podcast. Stay tuned also for a very special giveaway for tickets for the Breeders' Cup. And we're going to discuss something that's pretty relevant at the moment in the US uh, industry, sports industry in general, which is uh, sports betting and where it's going. And uh, I know that, Mike, you've said how to get more people into racing is gambling, gambling, gambling. And really, we need to think about the way that gambling is going now in America with the, with the introduction of sports betting in throughout the country is only going to get bigger and better. So... In your experience, what do you think is the, the next way forward for racing and wagering? The gambling is the most important thing. Without mm. gambling, there is no racing. And there's no way to get around that fact. And all the, all the stakeholders in this industry, some of them don't pay enough attention to that. Um, that's why there's been groups like the like HANA, the, the Horse Players Association of North America, that hammer on points like pricing or takeout, as they call it, things like breakage. Um, more money needs to go back to the gamblers. And it's been proven time and time again, the more money that goes back to the gamblers, the mm -hmm. more they gamble, and it increases the revenue. But now there's a new toy, a new kid on the block, and that's sports betting, and we need to work out how racing fits in with this. And would this not be the, I, the dawn of fixed odds would be a natural next step? Well, we, we missed the boat in the States. And it's not just because, um, you know, Betfair bought TVG 10 years ago. And so I've been, you know, part of this, like, get out the board on, on exchange wagering. But we really missed the boat in horse racing on fixed odds. And I think most horse players want fixed odds. Um, I think it was just too hard to get through. The only state, we only got it through in one state. We actually passed legislation in California. And it's never come to fruition. We've never been able to get it approved. And that's really unfortunate. And that's, you know, this is a whole nother topic, but that's, you know, the push for a national racing compact and, mm. you know, a single governing body to make these decisions so we don't have 39 different racing fiefdoms making their own decisions and making things infinitely more difficult. Um, fixed odds wagering is something that 
will help that natural attrition of a sports better into horse racing mm-hmm. more so than anything else because I still have a hard time explaining to people who will bet thousands and thousands of dollars on you know college basketball games where they couldn't name one player on either side. I still have a hard time explaining to them. I know you put money down at four to one, but the horse is five to two, and they leave the gate. They still they still don't understand like how is that possible? Yeah, right. How why would we allow that to happen? And we have very antiquated software, and we pool you know forty percent of the pool comes in within the last you know 30 seconds of wagering. And that doesn't reflect on an odd system that we can see in real time. We're still dealing with fractional odds, which is absurd. But like all of these other things, if you could just tell someone you're getting four to one now and you're going to get four to one when they, you know, because in sports betting, that's all you get is fixed odds. You don't mm-hmm. have to sweat that out, right? You want to make, if the, if the line moves in your favor, you double down, right? If the line moves against you, you're like, yes, I locked in at this, right? So, yeah. um, for for that mentality to be like oh you know pick and pray it's a that makes it horse racing an even tougher sell yeah and it's just going to look obvious to a sports better why why the hell would i be betting on horse racing when i don't know what i'm going to get on top of that future betting is a great option to have what if you could lock in your fixed odds bet today for the kentucky derby 2020 why does that not happen in U.S. racing? Let me give you a refresher course in history. We were founded by a group of people who were so uptight they got kicked out of England. So never forget that about America. So we're all, you have a bookmaker culture. We have a culture of just, you know, of being way too uptight about things. Um, and so we, we've never had bookmakers in the U.S. until now, until the advent of, of sports betting. I think that's why there can be a natural growth between the two. You can get future bets or antiposts, as you call them, if you go to Vegas and, you know, the, uh, we all had a really good friend who worked at uh, the Wynn Casino, John Avello, who was one of the greatest line makers that Las Vegas had ever seen. And wherever he worked, that was the line that the rest of the strip worked off of. He was he would always make the moves and he was really kind to horse players and he would give you future odds on almost anything without him in Vegas anymore. I don't even know where I could go to get a future bet down. I mean, I could I could go into John Avello and say, hey, I've got a Baffert filly that hasn't started yet. I want to get a future on her for the Breeders' Cup. What will you give me? And he would work something out. Now, I don't even know if they you could find a list of future odds for the Breeders' Cup right now in Vegas. It's just completely left of their mindset. And we talk so much about the Breeders' Cup. Who's running in the Breeders' Cup? Who's in the Classic? Who's in the Tough? Who is this? We can't even bet on them now. So what is the obsession with knowing who's going to run if it doesn't even matter until the day of? Right, because we salivate for the days where the pool is large enough that our money is insignificant, right? So we can take as much out without it affecting the odds. And there's only a handful of those days on the year. It's Breeders' Cup Friday, Breeders' Cup Saturday, Derby Day, and if there's a Triple Crown Belmont Day. And that's it. Like in the States, that's what we're reduced to. Those are days where we have Hong Kong racing-sized pools where I could go in, not that I would do this, but I could go in with a $20,000 bet and it's hardly going to touch what the odds are. Um, so we, we salivate for that. So because of that, because that's all we have to look forward to, um, you know, we know we can't get future bets down and there, there's future pools, but they're so insignificant, right? The Derby mm-hmm. futures. I mean, that's a, a crap shit. You're t- I mean, the, the Kentucky Derby uh, don't, I mean, people jump on me for saying this. The Kentucky Derby is the most overrated race in the world. It's three-year-olds going a mile and a quarter for the first time. You can't possibly know anything about them. And 16 of the 20 horses are rushed to be there and shouldn't bend in the race anyway. So you're basically throwing darts on the future pool there. And you're probably going to get five-to-one odds or better on any horse you want on Derby Day. Why are you going to bet them to even make the race, right? So Breeders' Cup is clearly a better futures market because you have you can telegraph who's going to be in there months and months down the road. 
Um, and that uncertainty of making the race is the only thing that you're really gambling on because mm-hmm. chances are if they make the race, they are going to be who you thought they were. Yeah. Um, and if they're not, just all the better for you because then you have the live odds to adjust your play to accordingly. But um, it's just it's just something that's not in us. It's something that we haven't had the luxury of doing. I mean, you take a you take an American to a to a, a British racetrack and have them walk in the bookie ring. I mean, you want to see someone lost? It's I mean, they won't know what to do. Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting for me. I feel that it would just improve people's perceptions and excitement and interest in the horse if they see it winning. Um, at, in a Breeders' Cup winning your in race, and they can place a bet right there, right then, in on the actual Breeders' Cup and whatever anti-post market they can. That will build more interest in the horses themselves, and I'd imagine wagers will want to listen about their uh, their track work in the, in the mornings, and they'll um, and they'll have more of a story they feel and be part of it. Whereas actually, who cares when you're talking about the Breeders' Cup today if they you've got something to bet on? Um, on uh, on that day instead it's just it will add a bit more of a excitement and a belief in that horse if you've already got your bet placed for me and that's what we do and that's why we talk about future races so often in the UK and in Europe because we're constantly thinking about the 2000 guineas we're constantly thinking about the derby the Grand National because we can place a bet on that right now so it will just add to the experience for me so it makes sense and it's a kind of a call to arms i think let's get future betting happening in the united states if you can uh fixed odds it seems like a no-brainer for me i i think it's important and i think the the likelihood of that happening is probably greater in the advent now of um sports betting because you look at the major players one of which is our company um that have ventured into sports betting they come from a product that didn't exist 30 years ago which is fantasy sports and then something that didn't exist 10 years ago which is daily fantasy sports and basically they're just innovations in a form of wagering right and now that we have all this rush to the marketplace in a legal marketplace it's not you know some guy with you know dollar bills in his knuckles you know taking phone calls in saint Kitts. these are major corporations who are you know hiring very young talent and smart people to innovate in the world of gambling and I think if it comes over naturally from the sports betting side, we can get into the horse racing mindset and kind of break the mold. Mm-hmm. Look, we have you know the same people running horse racing now that we're running it 100 years ago. And that's great for certain continuity, and that's great for the sporting aspect of the game. It hasn't been great for the wagering side of things. And even organizations that we think understand the horse player will you know make a decision that invariably alienates a portion of their customer because there is somewhat of a gap between those who run this game and those who play this game. Yeah, and change is good and change is needed. It's innovative. It will improve racing. It will improve the perception. But it seems to me the stubbornness about change could be an undoing. And obviously other models throughout the, the world aren't necessarily perfect, but it does offer more to the wager. And going back to our first uh, point is that racing is about the gambler, is about the person that's placing the bet. And if we can offer more options to them, more betting uh, uh, options when you go go out and place the bet, that will just enhance their experience. And these the wagers and the handicappers that we have in the United States are smart. And the options you have in terms of form, handicapping, there's so much more than we have in even in the UK. Being able to read the times with track work. We don't know what's going on behind closed doors in the UK, but you get to see it all here. That is a big benefit over here, and it's just going to allow 
uh, gamblers the more of an opportunity and hopefully more reason to stay with horse racing than other sports. I mean, we can get people watching the Kardashians in 68 countries and somehow the United States can't export points of call and past performances. It drives me nuts. I don't know how you people handicap over there. You really like you're just I guess who's prettiest, right? It's it's unbelievable. How do you know how, if you don't know how many lengths we'll a horse was this off, one. How do you know how do you know how to bet if you don't know where a horse was at the quarter pole, the half mile pole, what kind of a running style they have? I mean, you're just you're just basically going off memory. Well, obviously we have a totally different setup in terms of our racetracks. Like w there's no emphasis on speed. They're all based around the beautiful English countryside with our rolling hills and our undulations. So an emphasis on speed is never really been our, our big our big player. Um, we have some of our um, all weather tracks, which which is conducive to that. And we, we work on lengths and a handicap system, which is all based on weights and um, how far a horse was beaten, not necessarily the speed, which is just the way that we do it. Um, whether it's the right thing, whether it's the wrong thing, I don't know. We can battle it out. And I think when it comes to the Breeders' Cup, it's interesting to see who beats who uh, based on our handicapping system and based on yours. And it's something that I, I get so much enjoyment out of. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. Um, you basically ha you're reduced to film in the U.S., right? Because you the only way you're going to get an idea of these horses is to watch their races. And let's be honest, past performances are just basically the best numeric or you know, handwritten or typed out representation of what a race looks like physically. You're supposed to, it's like Shakespeare. You're supposed to watch it. You can read it, go ahead, but you're supposed to watch it, right? You're supposed to take it in. That's racing. You're supposed to watch it. You're supposed to take it in. So at the end of the day, so long as you do your due diligence and you have access to such things, which is a whole nother topic about having access to information, um, then you should be fine. Well, I think if we have a combination of the access that the U.S. gets with the times and the data, plus the U.K. system or the European system, definitely UK and Ireland of fixed odds, then there could be a brilliant marriage of, of two things there. So maybe that's where uh, the US should go to. I like the pinko communist regime in Australia that provides past performances and running lines for free at all points, whether it's Racing New South Wales or Racing Victoria. You can actually, I was blown away by it. I had multiple websites and sources where not only could I get their past performances, I could watch all their past races and it didn't cost a penny. And I was like, mm -hmm. I don't know, understand how this works, but they make it work. And uh, there's no doubt that Australia is the leader in terms of horse racing um, at the moment. Mike, it's been great to chat about the wagering uh, and, and how it's going in, in the US. And it's an interesting time for us. And we hope that it, it, the sports betting might bring about some change. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But it's definitely a lot for people to consider. Well, I know I'm firing. A come to Jesus moment. I think it's probably something that's really popular here in the States, definitely in the southern part of our country. Uh, but come to Jesus moment is that moment when you realize that you need Jesus. You need help. Like you realize you can't do this by yourself. So the come to Jesus moment means you have to face the music. This has come to you now and you need to face this. And so I feel like, you know, right now, especially with, you know, things that are happening with our tracks in Southern California and the things that people are protesting, this is definitely a come to Jesus moment for horse racing. It's the moment for horse racing to, to maybe go to the federal government or go somewhere and say, hey, we need oversight. Mm -hmm. We can't do this ourselves. We yeah. need some help to fix this. And if we don't fix it now, we're done. So thinking about that, today in U.S. horse racing, there are 38 states with 38 governments governing bodies and 38 regulating entities with many different lobbying groups, each with their own agendas. 
and they oversee and influence the thoroughbred racing and breeding industry, but they don't work as a collective, really, ever. They're very fragmented, and they each uh, contend with a variety of lobbyists, and everyone wants to sort of run the industry without a collective mandate in mind. Is that fair to say? That sounds accurate, yeah. It does sound accurate. So there's like a sort of a patchwork of rules and regulations. And from a perspective that where I come from, we have the BHA, the British Horse Racing Authority, a governing board that takes ownership of the rules, the regulations, and ensures an oversight as to how everything's done in a properly and ordinary fashion. It sounds a bit like a headmaster looking down on their pupils and saying, if you want to get your best grades and if you want things to be successful, if you want to do well, you've got to stick by these rules. So how do we how do we make this happen? How does this how do how do we go about doing this in in the U.S.? Or why has it not happened yet? That's a those are great questions. Uh, the last one I'll start with. I don't know why it hasn't happened yet, because there's a great example. Like, obviously, we have separate in individual interest in horse racing, right? Owners. You're in charge of your stable, and that's your interest, and we understand that. Mm -hmm. But I look at your stable as the same way that I would look at an NFL team, right? So the Johnsons, they own the New York Jets, and they want the Jets to win the Super Bowl. But at the end of the day, they also want to make money, right? So the owner of the Jets has no problem listening to what the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, Jerry Jones, has to say about how they can all make money together. Mm -hmm. So if you ever look at the NFL, it is dictated by three owners. Mm -hmm. Jerry Jones, the Dallas Cowboys, uh, Robert Kraft, the New England Patriots, right? And then you can maybe pick another owner. But those two control everything. And all the other owners kind of fall in line behind them because it's in the best interest of the entire league for them all to be going in the same direction. That's how they've made money. Uncle Jer in Dallas has made them all billionaires because they followed him. So that, that, that's a model that maybe some of our owners could think about. If you get together collectively, and we talked about this 20 years ago on TVG, if you make the pie bigger, don't worry about getting a bigger slice, make the pie bigger. And then you can worry about your slice after that. And so I think if maybe the owners thought about it collectively, like, hey, if we build this up, eventually it'll come back to me as more money, yeah. better promotion. So you need to accept that there will be changes yep. and accept that you might not be winning all the time exactly. for the bigger picture, which is just essentially improvements. Now, how are you going to say you love this sport and you love this game, but you won't make any personal sacrifice to grow the sport and grow the game? Yeah. And I don't have you know, $50 million and I'm not invested in stable. So I don't know what that's like to pay those bills every single month. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know what that's like, but my point is, is if this is a, a, it's the one sport that is falling behind because we don't have any solidarity and we don't have transparency. And if we don't have those two things, we're going to continue to fall and fall and fall. Sure. You're going to make your 20 million, but the sport is going to continue to die. Yep. And then what are you going to do in 20 years? Well, exactly. And the, the problem here is, is that we, we see the issues, we know that they're happening, but everyone seems quite happy just carrying on, brushing it maybe under the carpet and just sort of thinking, oh, racing will be okay. Racing will be fine. But the come to Jesus moment, perhaps, <laughs> is that I don't think it really is anymore. And obviously we've got 
boards, the NTRA, is, it's a, it's a broad-based coalition. But what I've read is that there's more than 100 horse racing interests in this one board. How does that even work when there are so many people under one banner trying to make things work? We just need this one figurehead, this one board with not hundreds of different people, right. one representative from each. And you mentioned when we're discussing this topic, mm-hmm. we want... One person from uh, to represent owners, one to represent trainers, one to represent jockeys, the me- the media, the wager, the gambler, the mm-hmm. public, the people that also are putting owners are putting a lot of money into the sport. But every day, wagers are as well yeah. when they go to the track, when they place their bet, because that bet is going to go back to the racetrack that goes back into racing. So these people all need to be represented. But there doesn't need hundreds of them. They all need to have their interests and they all need to align and then they need to govern. How this works uh, dynamically is is a question that I feel like in America it's just so large and physically it's quite difficult. That might be the reasons why it hasn't worked in the past. But at this, at this stage where you can look at other... Um, sports and how they've worked you've mentioned the nfl Mm -hmm. the nba is also a very good example and they've actually made changes that's the one thing that i think about when you mention these other sports and horse racing i was thinking okay maybe we're so you know we're so entrenched in in the the tradition of the sport and the way things work that maybe it's hard to change those things but you know watching what the nba has been doing especially the past let's say five years the nba maybe even 10 years the nba has gone from a sport that was you know People were interested. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, of course, they obviously have their global brand, which is definitely going to, to different countries, and we're seeing what's happening with that. But they've also made the conscious effort to give the players more of a voice. They did that. Uh, NBA saw that these players were getting to a point where, okay, these players are getting pretty big, and they have influence, and they want to speak their minds. They want to support that fundraiser. They want to support that particular issue. We can't stop them, so let's help them. So the new commissioner, Adam Silver, was one of the first to start that. He's like, you know what? Okay, let's embrace the player and see what they want to do. And that has changed not only their league and how it works, but it's also changed the global outlook of their league. And it's changed how people look at the players. So you can evolve. Yeah. And at the time, was that a bit of a gamble by Silver? Was that a sort of... It was. We'll put the voice into our players. It was a huge gamble. Because you're talking about Mm -hmm. a league that just 20 years ago, because a young player by the name of Allen Iverson was the most popular and the best player, but he had tattoos and cornrows. So the commissioner intentionally came out and said, no more jerseys and baggy jeans on your flights. You will all wear slacks and shirts and ties. Because the commissioner didn't like what that looked like when your star player was this guy with tattoos and cornrows. Now that's ignorance on his part, obviously. But the point is, is that once you started seeing more players that look like that mm-hmm. and the way the public responded to those players and loved those players, you have to be cognizant of that. And the commissioner is like, I need to change. This game needs to reflect what the fans want. Mm-hmm. And so my point is, that's an example of something that horse racing can do. They can look out and say, okay, what do our fans, what do people want? What are we lacking? Yeah. And what we're lacking is, well, a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, number one would be solidarity and transparency. Mm-hmm. And if they could find a way to do that, I think it would really help. But what's happening right now with horse racing, there is no way that the public is ever going to accept horse racing the way it is now. Mm-hmm. Never. And the way that we go about trying to sell it, there's absolutely no way. 
and they have to change everything yeah. that they're doing. And what I see, I seem to feel, and what I've seen in so many companies, it's not just sports, it's wherever you go, the small, tiny changes that can really impact, that can really help, that can help perception internally as well, because what we're showing on ex externally is a reflection of what's going on in mm -hmm. from the inside. So making sure your jockeys are happy, making sure your grooms, the people that are putting the sport on, yeah. are all united under one cause, will ensure that externally people are thinking, God, that's interesting. Did you see that? Or what's going on there? There's something there's, there's something going on that they're really passionate about. Right. And that's something that does take time. And mm -hmm. it's not a turnaround tomorrow. But these small things with a, a, a one leader saying, this is what we're going to do to improve it, right. to be that the backers, the forces for change will allow racing that better space and allow us to at least have the chance to to improve. I wanted to ask you also, Ken, about there's a really interesting revenue sharing system with the NBA mm -hmm. and how they operate. And it made me think about, I spoke to Ken, uh, to Mike, uh, sorry, about wagering and how every bet that you place when you're at the track goes back to the race course and then they can decide exactly how they reuse it. Now, with the NBA, they have a revenue sharing system where teams contribute to the pool um, and it, if it is less than the league's average team payroll that the team is a revenue recipient. As Jeannie Buss, who executive vice president um, for the Lakers, has said, any business operator wants to keep their revenue, obviously. But the nature of their business is that they understand that there's a bigger picture. They bring in the revenue and then they redistribute it. So could you imagine? All tracks have a, play, have a governing body where they have to give over their revenue and then it's decided how that money is given back. Do you think that could ever be possible? You know, uh, it's interesting because what that, that started in, in sports because you would have a major market team like the Lakers, right? Mm -hmm. Or a major market team like the Yankees who are uh, in baseball, who are automatically going to make 10 times the revenue that a team from Milwaukee is going to make. They're not going to make as much money because of this, the city size, the market size, the revenue, the, the ad, ad sharing, all that stuff. So they came up with these ways to make it fair. Because how is that small market team ever going to get a free agent mm -hmm. if they don't have any money, right? If the New York Knicks or the Yankees or the Giants have all the money or the Lakers have all the money, how is the small market team going to possibly compete? So that was revenue sharing to help them mm -hmm. stay afloat and help them compete. I don't know how that would work for tracks, Right. Because yeah. you've got a let's say a big track is uh, Churchill Downs is obviously a major track. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so they have to revenue share with, let's say, Emerald Downs. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how that helps. But with that, not it's not helping them, but it's helping the overall picture of racing. So if they are taking in a big chunk of money and they're putting it right back into trackers as so they should mm -hmm. they're doing a really good job and they want to keep that job uh, as strong and they want that perception to be good but do they or do they not, not want all of horse racing to improve yeah. and would offering back to other race courses who need that leg up just be for the greater good of racing and in a revenue sh sharing program uh, on that basis improve you know, tracks with no uh, with no visitors, tracks that have falling falling rate of right. people just turning up. Right. Because what we're looking at now is tracks are just are running because they know that people back at home are watching TVG and they're wagering, which is great, but there's no one there and it's a sad story. So what I'm thinking is that a sharing system means that you probably would be able to offer the opportunity for tracks to remarket, 
to to put on better events, better race days, and then the perception of racing from state to state improves. Okay, so question now is how do you mandate how each track spends that money? What if they want to give their workers a raise, but they don't want to uh, improve the turf course? Yeah, like they've got to make choices with that money, right? And of course. So what do you what do you choose? I would choose they give their workers a raise. But at the same time, the bigger picture means, well, if you improve your turf course, it's going to be a lot safer for the most important commodity that you have, mm -hmm. horses and riders. Yeah. So now you, these are the decisions that have to be made. So and these are decisions <laughs> that need to be made by a federal body who are deciding exactly how things should be spent. Because hopefully these, and we've seen the incredibly smart um, leaders of the NBA, of the NFL, these yeah. are businessmen. These are business, business people exactly. who know how to run a business. So yes, you shouldn't be just giving a track and saying, here's your money, you enjoy it, you're a smaller track, you need it. You say to them, this is how you divide it out and this is how you can improve. And we're saying this as a business consulting type of system. Right. And the idea is that it's not going to be overnight, but it gives the impetus and the, the encouragement for these tracks to improve. Whether that is pie in the sky, an idea that could never happen, yeah. might not be, but it's an idea. It's a, it's a come to Jesus moment. Okay, what can we do? It's not a, yeah, we need help and I just don't know how to improve it it's this is how other sports have done it mm -hmm. why can't we take a leaf out of their book yeah i don't see why we can't you know one of the things that happened this year in southern california that i thought was very uh impressive and i thought it was definitely a sign of progress because i don't believe i'd ever heard anyone say this and maybe they had before but i don't believe that i'd heard anyone say this and what i mean is obviously we had our issues at santa anita and so they were obviously scrambling trying to find a way to fix that and they couldn't and it just kept getting worse so then they, they were given that break and horses went to Del Mar. Mm -hmm. And there was an outstanding meeting where there was not one blemish for the entire meeting at Del Mar. And the people at Santa Anita were great. They dropped mm -hmm. the ego and the arrogance and said, whatever you did there, we're going to do it here because it worked. Yep. Most tracks don't do that. Most businesses don't do that. Most executives don't do that. Everyone's all stuck in their own head and their own arrogance. We're like, oh, no, I can fix it. And I just love the fact that they were like, hey, they, that worked for them. Yeah. Let's try to do that here because we need to find an answer. And, and that's I just unity. love that they did that. Exactly. Unity, that's the first step towards and it's, that. And it's for the better of racing. And obviously Santa Anita are going to provide different things that Del Mar does. And Del Mar will do things differently. They're not all copying each other. Exactly. We're not going to have a socialist racing no. uh, industry. But what we are going to have is just opportunities to say, okay, yeah, that worked. Or that didn't work. What would we do as, right. as a community so to improve They were like, it. we can pull three of those things that'll work for us, if you don't mind, can we use those? And they were like, yeah. And yeah. I thought that was a great start for them to, to Well, there we go. We've got, we've got our, our, our eye open to how it can work and how it, and it, how it will do. And I'd imagine, and I know that Santa Anita have got some great ideas and to make this Breeders' Cup, you know, one hopefully the, the best that we've seen. And it's very exciting. Um, but as you said, Ken, it's important that we reflect on this year and we'd mm -hmm. like to hope and it's kind of a call to arms that whoever is in charge and it'd be great to see what they come out of at the end of the year either says this is how we're going to change things how we're going to restructure it and you know next year is going to be even better and the issues that we've seen last year aren't going to happen and there is a clear and defined mandate yes and i hope that it works out for them you know i would like to think that an owner because that's the one thing that i haven't seen uh, since everything started happening in December of last year, I haven't seen one owner step up and say, hey, we can fix mm -hmm. this. Let's get to, I haven't seen one. And the owners are nearly like the owners that we see in the NBA and they've got the, they do have the power. They're not, they're not owning a whole 
team, but they do have the voice that yeah. people respect yeah. because they've made a lot of money. They've done very well. Absolutely. People respect those types of people and it would it would help. It would improve. It would it, people step back and say, oh, you know, he's got a good point to make. But if there was if all the owners came together and had that one voice, one leader to, to do mm -hmm. that, to make those decisions, maybe we'd be in a slightly better place. Well, you cannot go through all of these lengths to dispute a disqualification in the Kentucky Derby. And I see that all the time. And that's part of the game and you know it. And then not have one, I'm not saying that that same owner's guilty of this, but not have an owner step up and try to address this. Yeah. So you're going to go all the way to the court, Supreme Court you want to go to, to have this thing, mm. this disqualification that was justified, by the way. You're going to go ahead and fight that mm. because of, I don't know why. I'm not sure why that individual would, would fight that. Pride. And yeah, which, by the way, is one of the worst things you can have because uh, it controls everything and it's not necessarily a good thing. And then not step up for this. Yeah. That's the thing that I think that frustrates people within horse racing is that you will fight tooth and nail for your personal interest. But what about the entire sport? Yeah. We need to separate those two things yes. out. Because you will still have your horses to race. You can still do your thing. Absolutely. But when it comes to the point where there is no racing because someone has shut it down mm -hmm. and it's all too late. Yeah. Because but and it would have been the perfect opportunity to to stand up and say, I'm gonna take one for the team here. Horse racing is the, is one of those areas where because an individual has more money, you know, they have more power. And um, I've always been that person where I was like, mm, I don't really care about that. I'm a grown man. I have common sense. I'm college mm -hmm. educated. I can figure things out for myself. If I'm wrong, please tell me. Yeah. But don't try to shut me down because you have the power and I don't. No, that put your money where your mouth is and improve things. Make things yeah. better. If you love the sport, you will want then the show best us. for the sport. Yes. If you love the whole sport, then show the world you love the whole sport. Your sport needs you now. So if you really love it, get together. Go to Jesus. Amen to that. Get everything together and let's make a difference. Ken Rudolph, thank you very much for joining us today. I think we've covered a really important topic that I'd be delighted to hear more from our listeners. Uh, hashtag TVG pod for your views, um, your comments, your feedback. What do you think uh, needs to change, needs to be improved? Um, thank you very much. It is ticket giveaway time. For Southern California residents, you could win tickets to this year's Breeders' Cup. Tweet at TVG with hashtag TVG pod and tell us why you want to go to this year's Breeders' Cup. The winner will get a pair of Grandstand Reserve tickets to Future Stars Friday. Please note, travel will not be included. You have all weekend and the winner will be revealed on Monday via Twitter. Good luck. One of the greatest performances you'll ever see. California Chrome in a canter. California Chrome, unbelievable. Okay, Candice Hare, thank you so much for joining us on the episode two of the podcast. So you're our resident expert on international racing, an encyclopedia for everything international, which leads me on to how the systems of international racing is run. And you've obviously done a lot of research in, into the way that horses are handicapped in uh, Hong Kong and the UK and Australia and the differences now that we we find. When you watch horses in these races and you're starting to understand the discrepancies in weight for one and how it works with races getting penalties, having to get into the field, horses who are in a field and out of the handicap, it's a whole different world than what we have here yeah. in America. And so I've been lucky in that way and that with some of these other systems, I just had a horse who I liked who wound up in a, a certain jurisdiction. Mm. And here I was following the racing and you feel like a fish out of water at first, but 
the more that you're just in it in the day in and day out basis, the more that it becomes second nature. Yeah. And with the handicap system, what you get is to start following a horse and following their pattern of running. You can follow what a trainer is doing in terms of building their handicap mark up to reach a certain point to get them into one of those biggest races. At the moment, that's happening with the Melbourne Cup. Um, and we're seeing horses that are trying to get into this race. And it's it's as nearly as exciting as those graded races in terms of trying to get into the biggest races. But it's slightly harder because you've got to be careful with how well you're doing to make sure that your handicap mark doesn't go up too much and you're you're still at a, at a weight that means that you're going to be at your optimum to race at so it's very competitive and it's a fun aspect of racing that we see globally but not so much in America and I'm struggling I have struggled to see why it's never really kicked off here or what happened that we sort of missed the boat with with the handicapping system when it when it comes to racing here yeah so it's a bit interesting you see how fun it is and you know by the time this airs, it will have been a couple of days. But when we're recording this, the day before, out in Australia, the night before, was the Geelong Cup. And Prince of Aaron, who's mm-hmm. raced here in America, raced in Europe for Charlie Fellows, he was out of the handicap for the Melbourne Cup, a race that he ran so well in last year. And he ended up having to win his prep to get in. And it was an eventful week. He was drawn wide. Charlie Fellows on Twitter was losing his mind yeah. that this horse was able to win and get He's in. such a character. Well, yeah. And you can imagine, you've taken a horse all the way down there to another country, long way to travel to miss your big goal but as you say it does provide that drama and you know here in America it's it's very different obviously we race through conditions and mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with it but I, I do think that if you had a handicap system in place a few kind of grievances that fans have that horsemen mm-hmm. have that trainers have you know could really be solved when you have the handicap system everybody has that number so yeah. you know where everybody fits and it makes horses run against each other because you have to, right? Yeah. That's the races you have to run in. And, you know, on a sense too, I think it allows horses to race longer because, mm. you know, taking out a couple of, you know, very honest types who maybe they never put in poor efforts and, and their ratings don't come down dramatically. If a horse is severely outclassed, their rating is going to come down to a spot from which they can win naturally mm. because they're going to put in poor effort after poor effort after poor effort until they get to that class level from which they can win. And and that extends horses' careers yeah. in a way. And every horse, we talk about a horse finding their mark. And for the listeners that might not know, um, in the UK and the system goes is that a horse will run at least three times and then they'll be given an official handicap mark by the handicapper. And then they have to play in that space based on that mark. How can we get to the horse to a stage where they're at, at their mark, they find their level, and then we go and have fun with it. And there are lots of good prizes to be around in this sort of middle ground. Handicaps now um, in Europe and in Australia sometimes bigger and more valuable than they are um, anywhere else. Like the Ebor handicap is now full of group horses in a handicap, you call it. So it's not, it can be for those classier horses too. So as you say, it gives more options, but it also allows longevity in horses. You can see horses suddenly having renaissances after maybe a year of, of, of struggling at a, at a at a high mark and then they come down and a new trainer might find a bit of fun with them at a different track. So it really allows uh, a group of horses that are sort of in that mid division to have their days, which is what owners want and it allows owners to have fun and it brings more people into the game. And when you've got 
racing in America who where we always wanting to try and encourage new owners that seems to me as a as a as a great potential there for people to see actually my horse might not be up that great but they will be just a little bit below and we can still have fun so how how could that come about like would there be that type of um, impetus like there in in American racing or do you think we're just we are who we are and we'll just we'll just keep in our in in that nature Oh, I think that there's becoming more pressure for it to change that way. I mean, as you say, it, it gives that chance for the horses in the middle. And and to be honest, that's where more, most horses reside. So yeah. it's giving most horses a chance. You know, as you say, you could take group level horses and put them in against easier company. They just have to shoulder the weight, but they can go in against that group. And in the same regard, it allows lesser horses a chance against tougher quality horses in getting a significant weight break. It's really interesting. And thank you very much for joining us to discuss um, Australia, international racing and and what we can learn in the US. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this week's episode of the TVG podcast. A big thanks to Ken Rudolph, to Mike Joyce and to Candice Hare for joining us this week. Don't forget to like, download and subscribe to the TVG podcast on all your favourite platforms. See you soon.